I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. I'm Jack Caparell, filling in for Andrew Schwartz. In this episode, we welcome another in-house guest. Judd Devermont is the director of the Africa program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also the host of Into Africa, another great CSIS podcast. Before coming to CSIS, Judd served as the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and was the CIA's senior political analyst on Sub-Saharan Africa. On this episode, we discuss the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act Forum, which recently took place. There, the future of trade between the U.S. and Africa was high on the agenda. We asked Judd to give us an update and much, much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. So I'm filling in this week for Andrew Schwartz, who is taking his rising football star son to college. And we have a very special guest joining us, Judd Devermont. He's the director of the Africa program here at CSIS. And we've spent a lot of time, I think, talking about North America, certainly, and Asia, certainly. Uh, But we haven't talked a lot about Africa in and of itself. Um, I mean, we could spend multiple episodes on that. But we're very lucky to have Judd here. He has a whole breadth of experience when it comes to Africa, and Judd also hosts Into Africa, which is a CSIS podcast bi-weekly here uh, that focuses on African politics and policy. So welcome, Judd. Thanks for having me. And we've never had a real spy before, or at least one that, <laughs> admi- that, one that admitted it. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm, I'm honored to be your first. And this is a little payback for me because Bill was on our podcast and it was one of my favorite episodes. Well, let's try and replicate the success. The U.S. trade picture with Africa is really interesting because it's a growing economy, growing population, and yet the trade numbers are just, in my opinion, somewhat horrendous. I mean, we've had a declining overall trade some with the entire continent for a decade. And I think, Scott, before we started well, yeah, look, recording, not, not you said a, you, it was less than a rounding error, right? Total not only are the trends bad, okay, exports are, are falling, imports are falling, uh, but the absolute level is is minuscule. This is a continent with about $2.5 trillion of output. Total continental GDP, $2.5 trillion, roughly speaking. There's $50 million of two-way trade excluding uh, crude oil. So the amount of goods of goods trade, you take the take the hydrocarbons out of it, just because that trade is different in kind and character than the way uh, we typically look at uh, at goods trade or even services trade. Fifty million out of two point five trillion in output, we're kidding ourselves. I mean, there's there's a problem here. Now, of course, the problem may be math, but <laughs> which is it's a long way. There uh, there are more efficient sources for a lot of the goods U.S. imports. There are more efficient sources for a lot of the goods that Africa imports. Uh, and so there may be real, you know, sort of s- serious physical obstacles to this, but, but what's really going on here? Yeah, I think that one of the biggest challenges is there are real and perceived risks of investing in Africa. Um, I think our private sector is sometimes uninformed, sometimes skeptical, and sometimes downright scared about investing, that it could have these reputational costs, risks, and that they may not get the returns they want. Uh, American private sector is a little selfish sometimes. I think they want frontier returns with no risk when they invest in Africa. Of course. Why would anybody want anything else? It's a good deal, right? Uh, And on the other side, I mean, this 
is a very fragmented market, right? 17% intra-Africa trade. It's You can go look at Nigeria with 200 million people, or you can look at countries that have, you know, sub a million people. And so, very difficult to scale your investments in Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, no, there's no question. Look, we're Americans. We want our cake and our ice cream. Okay, we don't want really to worry about gaining weight when we eat the cake and ice cream. Right. So that's that's just being us. But Africa presents some unusual challenges. It's a massive continent. It has a very little internal uh, mobility opportunities. You know, there's no M- Mississippi River in Africa. There's nothing that would foster commerce efficiently, uh, and uh, other, than, other than the roads that have been built and the infrastructure that's there. But if you look at the even the coastline of Africa and the number of container ports in Africa, relatively small given the, the massive physical geography. But you made the point of scale, and that is really what most American firms are looking for: is either scale or rapid growth. And and neither one is available in Africa. And the, your your note about intra-African trade is really staggering. I didn't realize it was so low. But if you look, over half of European trade is intra-European. Over half of Asian trade is intra-Asia. And so that's really where the commercial ties get built. That's where you be, begin to demonstrate economic efficiency. And that's where you start to, as, if, as firms, you start to be a candidate to join supply chains. How much is infrastructure and transportation of the reason for that or, or are the economies simply not compatible? No, I, I think that it's both, right? Sub-Saharan Africa has the lowest road and rail density in the world. So just the physical connectivity is weak. But then there's all these regulatory problems. There are places where there is better integration, for example, in the East Africa community. Uh, there are currency zones, monetary zones, where there's better interaction. So In West Africa, you have the francophone currency called the CFA or the CFA, and that is aligned to the euro. And so a French company or European company that's investing in Mali is going to have an easy time expanding into Burkina Faso because it's the same currency. But that only covers a couple of countries. In fact, really in the weeds, the CFA, the CIFA, is uh, there's a West African version and then there's a Central African version, and they're not compatible. So there's a tremendous amount of regulatory challenges in addition to the infrastructure ones that have to be resolved. Now, down the, the calendar back uh, maybe a dozen or, or 20 years, there were three prominent trade blocks. There was ECOWAS, or the mm-hmm. East Africa. There was a West Africa, one I, which I forget the acronym. And there was SACU, which was a Southern Africa Customs Union. Do those st- uh, still exist? First question. Second question is, how will those be integrated together in this Pan-African Comprehensive Agreement? So there's eight regional economic Eight. communities, some of them more real than others. I mean, let's, we won't talk about the Arab Maghreb Union uh, that you know includes Libya. But uh, ECOWAS in West Africa, the EAC, SACU, or SADC, which is part of the sort of the political economic element of it, those are real. Yeah. And we've seen some progress uh, between those different or, uh, regional economic communities. Um, and then as a larger unit as part of the Continental Free Trade Agreement. Uh, in 2014, SADC, which includes SACU, the EAC, and then a group called COMESA, which is both North African and East African, signed a tripartite agreement. It took them three years, but they actually worked through it's 26 countries. They worked through all of the, the different regulatory challenges. And ultimately, I think those are, that's going to be a building block. In fact, I suspect most of the CFTA will be built on the tripartite trading block because almost all of those issues are already agreed on and it's half of the continent. So let me just ask this, the CFTA, the Continental Free Trade Agreement, 
African countries are making decent progress there, and hopefully that would resolve some of the regulatory issues that might be dissuading U.S. companies from investing in Africa. But I mean, does the U.S. have a role to play in making the environment in Africa or certain countries in Africa more attractive to their companies, or should we kind of be sitting on the sidelines, which it appears as though we've been doing largely for the past 20 years, if not longer. Well, don't forget what's behind door number three, which is not just on the sidelines, but trying to make progress on an initiative that no one wants. In this case, a bilateral free trade agreement with a single economy. Well, well, that's the other question, right? I mean, the administration clearly wants to negotiate on a bilateral basis. It says it wants to do so with a country in Africa and create this kind of model agreement. Meanwhile, you have signals coming from governments on the continent that no, we're not All interested. or nothing, basically, yeah. right? And so unpack a little bit what you think the administration's approach should be when it comes to creating a better business environment in Africa. The Continental Free Trade Agreement is the biggest deal that's happening on the continent, something that it was sort of envisioned and dreamed about starting in the 1960s. And it's got a long way to go. But everyone who follows Africa is impressed with how, how speedy this process of signing and ratification has been, I mean, beyond our wildest dreams. And now we've got between here and 2030, best case for the full implementation. But they're they're moving with some speed. They've got a secretariat mm-hmm. now in Accra, and they're working for some of these challenges. The U.S., as as you and Scott alluded to, is really lukewarm about this. We've now you can pull out a couple of statements where they talk about how it's positive, but they really just want to do an FTA. And the Africans are like, you know, we're in a totally different place than you. We've got this important initiative which most U.S. private sectors are actually very excited about. And you're talking about this one CFTA. So I think the U.S. has to get off the sidelines. I think it can work through some of its trade regulations and trade partnerships um, in conjunction with or concurrent with the CFTA, but it's got to change its rhetoric. I mean, we have to be rowing in the same direction at minimum. And right now, there's still, I think, a latent opposition to what the CFTA means and a deep skepticism about the CFTA. What's the basis for the skepticism, do you think? Because it's a very difficult thing to put together. Oh, they just think it won't work. They it just won't, think it, it won't, won't end up being anything real. Yeah, exactly. So it's all uh, political will is really important to delivering these things. Yeah. Even in ECOWAS and the EAC, which have freedom of movement agreements, some trade agreements, they don't implement them fully. So there's inconsistency. So the skeptic in policy says this will never happen. The timelines are different between a GOA's renewal and the CFTA. Uh, and we have marching orders to do an FTA. And so that's where we're going. And now you've got a statement out of the AGOA summit uh, from USTR saying that we would work with the Africans on the CFTA. But if you kind of peel back what they were saying, uh, it wasn't a commitment to the CFTA. It just says issues of mutual interest. Right. And so AGOA is the African Growth and Opportunity Act, uh, which is a preferential trade arrangement between the United States and uh, countries in Africa where those countries can export to the U.S., duty-free, quota-free certain products, right? That program expires in 2025, and there's been hand-wringing, I would say, about what comes next, because I don't know that there's much appetite to extend a preference program. And I think this administration wants to create a more, shall we say, reciprocal, to borrow from their dictionary, trade arrangement with the continent. But what I don't understand or what what I can't wrap my head around is why the administration would be opposed to efforts that would increase 
intra-Africa trade, right? So that's kind of what makes Asia a really attractive place for U.S. companies to do business because they can set up a supply chain in the region and, it, and yeah, it's the, more efficient, right? Uh, so, it's a great question, Jack, because if you look at it, uh, AGOA was kind of the old, it was the old hub and spoke model that went all the way back to the 70s right. and, uh, and really textiles and apparel trade under a under a quota system that was uh, heavily managed but that was all that was all uh, a point to point trade and agoa was kind of the last of these preferential agreements that was laid on top of a, of a set uh, of other preferences. Uh, and, and it was really, there was a lot of hope that it might work, that it might stimulate investment in the apparel sector, it might create some some job opportunities. It, it looks by all measures that it's completely failed. I mean, if I were a member of Congress looking at the trends in trade, okay, and looking at what exactly the preferences are used for, I think the most important, for, for the principal use of preferences is, is on crude oil. Uh, but uh, but the, it, it's one of these things. I'd look at that and said, "Why is this worth the effort?" You know, I'd, I'd be looking at something else entirely. Not to say it go as bad. I thought I thought it was a it was a it was a, a an initiative that had lots of merit, uh, and was 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 a good idea and worth doing. But there are some things. It's pushing water uphill. I think is is the, is relative. Why hasn't it taken off, Judd? Why hasn't it taken off? Do you know? I think it's a lot about the enabling environment. Um, I think that. Uh, for the apparel industry, I think that they weren't able to compete with China. And so I think there's this an ecosystem challenge for Africa and an education on the private U.S. private there's, sector. There's both competitiveness and logistics elements that are almost impossible to overcome. So even in items, apparel items have some of the highest tariffs, as we learned from Steve Lamar when he was here. So take there's a 10% tariff, okay? And, and, and AGOA makes it zero from Africa, but say 10% from... Cambodia. Bangladesh, Cambodia, wherever, just MFN tariffs. Okay, there is more than 10% efficiency in the way things are produced in Southeast Asia and the logistics to f- deliver from Southeast Asia. Yeah. The, a 10% tariff is simply too low to offset competitive disadvantages. There's a report from the Center for Global Development that points out that African labor relative to other developing regions are the most expensive and the least productive because transportation costs, food costs, those are all pushed onto the employer. Uh, there's issues just about you know, getting to work. Sure, and but what makes labor efficient is capital. Yeah. And there's no investment. African laborers could make a good living using machines uh, because that would make them more productive, but without the investment, you can't square the circle. I just want to get back to Jack's point earlier about this administration. There is some continuity between the Trump and the Obama administration around AGOA. When AGOA was renewed in 2015, uh, USTR published a paper called Beyond AGOA. Mm-hmm. It's actually really good. I can't believe how often I reread it. And in that piece, they provide a, a spectrum of options in terms of what we could do. And they include partnering with Rex, partnering with a CFTA, which was nowhere where it is now. And so I think the diagnosis of the problem has been consistent yeah. across administrations. but. It's, it's a little troubling and hard for me to figure out why this administration has pushed the sideline all of the other options in that paper written by USTR bureaucrats and is focused only on the FTA. Well, let's add in one more element that is, I think, providing may, may provide some new impetus, which is the advance of communications technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've looked at this not recently, and you'll, you'll be more current on it, but the growth in mobile communications is is just astronomical in Africa. We're talking, we're talking 1.3 billion people, so yep. it's the population of China, okay, who are all of a sudden connected. 
And we're going from an era of state-owned monopoly phone systems where there were, in some cases, 100-year waiting lists to get a hard telephone line, okay, uh, to, to people, uh, you know, checking markets every morning on yeah. a mobile phone that they've charged with a, with a, a, a solar panel. So uh, what's happening here and how, to, how do you take the, the whatever action is happening between governments to liberalize trade and use the vector of advanced communications to, to get people together, get, get them trading? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And this is what Afro-optimists like myself think about a lot in terms of leapfrog capacity. Mm-hmm. For our listeners, explain the leapfrogging phenomenon to make sure everybody understands yeah. that. Let me give you an example, one that people really like to say. There's the expansion of drone technology right now in sub-Saharan Africa. There's a company called Zipline, which is working in Tanzania and Rwanda and moving uh, blood transfusions through drones. And so a leapfrog example here is that roads, who needs roads, will move things via air. Um, cell phones was a huge leapfrog. They didn't have the the don't have landlines. No so yeah. cell phones. Yeah. So yeah. instead of doing it evolutionarily like we have, the technology can allow them to jump phases. There's about 47% of Africans have unique cell phone like subscription SIM cards. The number of cell phones is much larger than that because yeah. lots of people have two or three or four. Um, and then on the internet penetration side, it's only about 27%. But that's up from almost zero From almost years zero, ago. Yeah, right. right. So it's a huge growth. Yeah. And the GSMA, which is the you know, GSM trade association, says that Africa is going to have the fastest growing expansion of cell phone and internet access uh, in the next couple of years. So lots of growth opportunities, and I think lots of opportunities for U.S. businesses. What's really remarkable is that you've got this explosion of cell phone access and internet uh, penetration. At the same time, everywhere else in the world, data is getting cheaper. In Africa, it's getting more expensive. So you have a lack of competitiveness. Why is it getting more expensive? I think because there are usually one or two cell phone providers in each country. Some countries still have monopolies like Ethiopia. And I just think there's a competition issue that isn't bringing down the price. Well, last I checked, there were a number of U.S. firms who are world-class in things like telecommunications and delivering services digitally. Where are they? Are they part of Africa? Is anybody in the government encouraging them to do that? Do we have a plan? I 100% agree with you. And I've been working on trying to figure out why U.S. companies aren't involved in this sector because the opportunities are endless. The U.S. government has just unveiled this thing called Prosper Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, They did it in June uh, in Maputo at the Corporate Council on Africa. And what it really is is a coordination mechanism. Can we get the U.S. government to work better together, and that way companies can access all of the goodies that we offer? What I think is really missing in that is signaling what sectors American companies are competitive in. And the number one would be ICT and digital. And when I talk to U.S. officials, they're reluctant. They don't want to tell the private sector what to do. But given that we have some knowledge gaps when it comes to Africa and the market, I think the private sector would welcome the U.S. government to say, we think there's an opportunity here. We can put together some resources to help in terms of dealing with risk, equity, insurance. I can give you my theory on why the private sector is uh, reluctant, and it's one word, corruption. It's endemic in some of these countries, Nigeria being an example. Americans like rule of law. Uh, They like to be in countries where, knowing that there are going to be commercial disputes, because there's always commercial disputes. Uh, but they like to be in a country that has a 
transparent, reasonably efficient, reasonably objective process for adjudicating them. They don't have to win all the time, but they have to feel that if they feel wronged, they have recourse, and at some point uh, in their lifetime, they're going to get an answer. And um, the endemic nature of corruption, first of all, gets in the way of that. Second of all, uh, it, it creates the, the, uh, an enormous uncertainty dilemma, because if you have to buy people, they don't stay bought. Uh, and so you don't have any confidence that even that the, the arrangements you make, uh, to put it politely, uh, are going to stick because there isn't any means of, of – this is all outside the scope of the law anyway. There's no means of, of, of making them stick. And third, of course, Americans are in a particularly difficult position because we have very strong domestic rules against participating in corrupt activities uh, abroad. So we have a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, uh, and uh, this particular administration, I think, has not been as aggressive in prosecution as the last two were. The, mm-hmm. the, the trend toward more effective, uh, more aggressive FCPA prosecution really began in the Bush administration, but the Obama administration has continued it. Uh, but it seems to me that's uh, – if I were an American company, you know, I would look elsewhere. I would look to rule of law countries if I could find one. Yeah, you're exactly right. So the question is what is the balance? You know, how much should we be focusing on what the trade arrangements actually are and how much should we be focusing on the regulatory environment and dealing with corruption? There are ways – I mean, we have indices like Transparency International, et cetera, but – I find that Africans are very responsive to indices, sort of race to the top exercises. Um, we could point to scorecards like MCC and others. And what I would be focusing on, and apparently this is in Prosper Africa, but it's a minor note, is communicating, measuring some of these challenges, including corruption, but also the ability to get licensing, um, uh, arbitration mm-hmm. issues, making that public. I think the Africans would work very hard to be successful at that. Rwanda may cheat on it. If you read the Financial Times today, you can have a little more sense of how Rwanda kind of jiggers its numbers. But it would sort some of these challenges for an American consumer. You can go onto these indices, uh, whether it's a World Bank or otherwise, and have a sense of what is perception and what is reality in terms of risk and corruption. Speaking of recent stories, did you see the post this morning? It had a fascinating story about this 11-year-old girl in Kenya who's a chess prodigy. I mean, she's one of these rare people that is brilliant at chess, uh, and she can't get out of the country. She gets invited to all these international tournaments, and she can't get out because she doesn't have a birth certificate. And she uh, wasn't born in a hospital, and the Kenyan bureaucracy – and this is a common problem. It's not unique to her. But the Kenyan bureaucracy apparently can't cope with this. Uh, and they're, in a sense, they're wasting an enormous asset, wow. you know, and uh, aside from affecting her life, this would be, you know, a huge plus to have oh, absolutely. Uh, chess prodigies coming out of Kenya, but they're wasting the opportunity. But you, you, you look at this total situation, that's a great, uh, a great illustration of how government policy might want to be used in the U.S. to color outside the lines here a little bit, try something new. Because yes. you, if you look at our conversation, 20 years of AGOA has, where we actually tried to jumpstart an apparel business in Africa and create some employment, didn't do it, okay? Uh, So preference programs don't work. When you look at just uh, regular MFN trade, uh, Africa can get industrial goods much more inexpensively, much more efficiently from Europe and does, okay? We can get the products Africa does export more efficiently from elsewhere, and we do. And so there's no leverage here, you know? The president always looks for leverage 
$50 million in a, in a $2.7 trillion or $2.5 trillion output economy is no leverage at all. And so trying something nobody's tried before seems like something I ought to do. And working on the issues that Bill mentioned, particularly transparency and, and things that either circumvent or overcome corruption. Uh, uh, would would be, I think, a big opportunity. It's not going to produce short-term results because nothing has. Right. Okay, but but it's time. It looks like it's time for something new. What, what would you do if you were named Africa czar this afternoon? Uh, well, I I would do a lot of the things that we're talking about right here. I would try to think about how do we liberalize some of our visa opportunities mm-hmm. and free movement people, and particularly on the on the education side. We could do a tremendous amount of work on educating Africans. It's the 60th anniversary this year of the Kennedy Airlift, which brought lots of East African students to the United States, including President Obama's father. I think we need to reprise some of that educational role. We have Carnegie Mellon is now in in Rwanda, American universities in Nigeria. So there's lots of creative ways to do on the education side. I think we need to put a much more of a spotlight on the enabling environment, as we just talked about with Bill. And I think we need to go all in on some of these regional economic communities in the CFTA. I mean, robustly with rhetoric, and we should be embedding people into the secretariat because it is going to benefit our companies if they get this right. It'll help them achieve scale. Yeah. Okay. It'll make everybody more prosperous there. Okay, which is what we need to be able to sell things there. But but the 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 whole the whole notion of 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 tying together Africa. We'll only have results in the long term, but you've got to so you got to start it now. You yeah. got to use the technology levers that you have. And we're losing points. I mean, we're because we've been so ham-handed about this. Everybody else, the Europeans, the Japanese, the Chinese, they've been fighting with themselves to be the most congratulatory about the CFTA, and we have been press statement here barely. And so the Africans are like, why aren't you on board with the most important thing we're doing? Let's. I want to pursue that for a minute. Have you looked at or done any work contrasting the European approach? To economics and uh, to, with the American approach, because they have a set of preference programs just like we do. And uh, my impression—I'm not an expert on it at all. My impression is they've there are problems there too, but they've approached it a different way. Have you looked at that at all? A little bit. Uh, it's been a, a wonderful transition from being a political military analyst to to now <laughs> like trying to understand uh, the world of high finance. Well, you're finance. on the trade guys, so you yes. can't talk military. But so the Europeans have what are called EPAs, Economic Partnership Agreements. So they're they're more bilateral. Um, tariff uh, preferences. So they've been able to lower some of their tariffs, and the Africans are are doing it more superficially or more shallow, but they're doing it as well. And so those are actually locking, either reinforcing or opening up new opportunities for Africans to trade with Europe. And I think Mm -hmm. AGOA has not given us uh, the ability to compete with that. And so that's kind of where where they are right now. But how are they handling the CFTA, the ACT, FTA? The uh, EU president made a huge speech at the end of last year, uh, talking about how important it was and how they see some of their migration challenges that mm-hmm. would be ultimately uh-huh. solved by this integration. So I think they're looking at it much more big picture than we are, which is largely through this trade lens and unilateral, bilateral trade agreements. The Europeans see all of the downstream positive effects of a CFTA, even if they, I don't know, but I presume they have some skepticism about whether, when it will be implemented, but they're in whole hog. Speaking of big picture, so some folks, when it comes to U.S. engagement in Africa, view this, you know, view the continent as a battlefield with the U.S. on one side and China on the other side. And what I liked about your recommendations, Jod, about how, you know, if you were the Africa Star, what would you do is they were all, you know, 
proactive suggestions, doing things, you know, making use of, of what American companies are best at and not doing things like building roads and bridges and drones, although there are some good American companies that build drones. But, we can you build know, drones. I'm fine. Essentially, you know, we're not trying to compete in Africa with China doing what China does best. There are some commentators that would say, we got to take them on. And I mean, what do you make of that? Is 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 it useful to view Africa as kind of this battleground, this part of a chessboard between the U.S. and China, you know, that needs to be fought over? I think we need to be much more nuanced about our China-Africa policy. Uh, we have not been able to articulate, at least publicly, what are our actual priorities when it comes to addressing the China expansion and footprint. I mean, it seems like it's everything, which is clearly not a strategy. So there are a couple of things that I would think about. Most of them are not actually in the economic sphere that I would be worried about, whether it's about their military presence or the relationships they're building people with Africans or the ICT and what that means for counterintelligence. On the economic side, there's, it's really quite simple. We need to focus on what we're good at. And when it comes to things we're not good at, we need to be above the fray. And we need to help the Africans negotiate the best possible deals with the Chinese. I always think that we should take a line from improv, which is yes and. Yes, take the Chinese money, and we can help you structure these deals in ways that are more beneficial to you, our African partner, and are not discriminatory to our, our companies. So if we're not going to build the rail in Kenya, I'd like GE to have a chance to put the engine on that rail. And we know that when Chinese companies operate within constraints, they actually can be quite high level. Uh, so the World Bank, there was a study done by Seiss Kari, uh, John Hopkins, that said that Chinese road projects under the World Bank are just as good as any OECD road. And we have seen the Africans negotiate better deals with China in terms of addressing some of the labor practices, environmental practices. So we could do a lot more in terms of, especially if our company is not in the process, helping the Africans with the engineering evaluation, with the environmental review. Or if we're not comfortable doing that, then we invest that into the African Development Bank or the World Bank. But I think we can be a better partner for Africa by helping them get the best possible deals out of the Chinese, and then we can build on those. And not just the Chinese. I mean, what you're saying makes total sense. The the the, the story of infrastructure is it's all about the projects. Yes. You if you have you have a good project that's that's tightly tightly specified that is clearly clear. The partners know what they're doing. You have a payout program. You you understand those projects work no matter who does them. Yeah. Okay. A badly structured project will fail no matter who's in charge. And that and we 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 certainly know the difference, or our contractors do, and and many elements of the U.S. government know the difference between a good project and a bad one. So it's highly counterproductive to do what Ambassador Bolton did in December, which is tell the Africans that they're stooges, that they're being hoodwinked by the Chinese, that they're victims. It gives no agency to the Africans, and it's just us wagging our finger without an ability to respond. And you know, Scott, I heard of a very senior. U.S. national security officials say in the beginning of this administration, infrastructure is neutral, operation is political. And I really think that's an interesting way to think about it. Hmm. How do we help on the operational side to make sure that it isn't discriminatory? Um, yeah. And at those are those can be win-wins for us, not yes. to and you know, use require, a Chinese expression. It doesn't require a big budget either. No, yeah, it's, people. Yeah, it's people. It's people, it's ideas, uh, which which thanks to technology, can be communicated very cheaply, yes. almost instantly. And we, we create a framework so that we can 
go back to the Africans or the Chinese or whoever and say like, you know, this is not the same deal that the Kenyans got or the Ethiopians got, or perhaps even we create a framework around what are the principles about port infrastructure or road infrastructure. And we can start sorting out Africans that are governments that are not being consistent to that, not adhering to it. And we can take the Chinese or the Turks or the UAE or whoever the company is to task if they're evading it as well. Yeah. So the geopolitical lens maybe isn't the end all be all when it comes to Africa, or at least we should have rosier lenses. Well, we may want to look in a different direction than we are now. <laughs> Whatever we're doing on the trade side is leading to sort of almost nothing. So yeah. let's let's try something. For all our great listeners out there, if you want more discussions on trade and specifically on Asia, check out one of CSIS's newest podcasts. It's called the Asia Chessboard. In our newest episode, host Mike Green and I talk with Kurt Campbell, former Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. We discuss the United States' current strategy on Asia and how its trade policies are affecting the region and the world. Listen to the Asia Chessboard wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.